0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pagase.
1: Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. This week, the Biden administration pledged to send Ukraine more U.S. firepower.
2: American people are answering President Zelensky's call for more help. More weapons for Ukraine to defend itself, more tools to fight Russian aggression. My administration authorized another $200 million to keep a steady flow of weapons and ammunition moving to Ukraine. That brings the total of new U.S. security
1: assistance to Ukraine to $1 billion just this week. The Russian invasion intensifies as Vladimir Putin's troops move closer to taking Ukraine's capital.
0: The missile strike that tore through a line of people even as they were trying to flee showed the savagery of this war and a reckless disregard for human life. Sergei Pedarbinius was away looking after his ailing mother, but his family was trapped in their home. 18-year-old Mikita, 9-year-old Elisa, his wife Tatiana. I recognized my children, even though their faces were hidden, he said. I was able to recognize them by their clothing, their backpacks, and the suitcase. That must have been a terrible moment for you. Yeah. Tatiana, the woman he'd known since high school, had died too.
1: The civilian death toll continues to rise. On this episode, we'll talk about how Putin may perceive this increase in military aid And could it provoke the Russian president? Later, we'll turn to what's happening domestically. The Federal Reserve announcing a rate hike. What does it mean for us day to day here in the U.S.? First, Tom Nichols is a contributing writer at The Atlantic who recently retired from the U.S. Naval War College. Tom, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. All right, so the U.S., it's, it's walking a, a, a line here, trying not to get us into World War III, but still support Ukraine in its efforts to push back Russian forces. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough?
3: I think the United States is doing everything it can. Um, I think uh, President Biden's been um, threading that needle pretty well. I think he's uh, the package that he's asking Congress to send to Ukraine is significant and um, you know is going to make a real difference in um, Ukraine's ability to defend itself. Um, and I think um, the, what we're doing with our allies is really remarkable, not just in military coordination and beefing up NATO, but in basically shutting down the Russian economy in the space of just a couple of weeks as part of the price the Russians have to pay for this unprovoked war.
1: President Biden announced 800 million in new military aid for Ukraine, including 800 additional Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 9,000 anti-tank weapons, 100 tactical drones, and a range of small arms, including machine guns and grenade launchers. How does Vladimir Putin not see this and the added firepower as the U.S. getting directly involved.
3: Because it's not the U.S. directly involved. Um, those weapons are going to be um, used by Ukrainians. They have the, the people of Ukraine have a right to buy weapons to defend themselves. I think um, Putin will try and cast it as direct intervention. I think he's spoiling for a fight with NATO um, because I think at this point he would rather tell his people that he's fighting NATO instead of killing their own brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Um, but, um, you know, pe- people have a right to buy weapons to defend themselves. Uh, every, uh, free governments can, can receive aid. Those aren't Americans flying, um, planes or, um, carrying those weapons. And no matter what Putin says about it, he knows that as well.
1: But he seems, when I say he, Vladimir Putin seems rather unpredictable these days. Uh, some might say irrational, um, what does that say about any sort of negotiations between Ukraine, uh, its NATO allies, and Russia right now? If you have a Vladimir Putin that, frankly, even people who've studied him for years don't recognize.
3: Well, it's important to point out Ukraine is not actually one of the NATO allies. Um, this is the entire Western world Um helping Ukraine, including countries uh, you know, from Japan to Kazakhstan to um, the NATO alliance. Um, Putin is, I won't say unpredictable, but he's a lousy strategist. He has a tendency to take risks uh, without thinking about where they all end up. I think when he went into Ukraine, he had one plan And that plan was to um, give a speech when Ukraine surrendered after 48 hours. When that didn't happen, uh, there was no plan B in place. And um, I think that's part of the problem that we're dealing with now, is that he doesn't quite know what to do next. So he's resorting to the classic Russian playbook of just pounding cities and killing civilians uh, until someone gives up. Um, But it's also true that having... Watched Putin for over twenty years. Um, I think he has changed. I think he has become more paranoid, more isolated, um, uh, more um, aggressive, uh, and I think that's partly the result of a lot of years of being surrounded by sycophants and yes men, um, and also some sense that you know he is. I've I've sometimes said this is the world's worst midlife crisis. I mean, this is nostalgia for the old Soviet Union that he has now translated into military action. And um, that's very dangerous.
1: What do you make of reports that uh, we're getting from Russia um, that he has uh, put some of his officials on home detention because he's upset about the intelligence that he got before the invasion? Uh, What are you hearing? Any, Any truth to that? I mean, clearly there was some bad intelligence here. They weren't expecting the kind of resistance that they're getting by some conservative, you know, based on some conservative uh, estimates we're getting, 7,000 Russian troops have been killed. So clearly this is not going as planned for them.
3: If the Pentagon's numbers of Russian troops killed is anywhere near accurate, that's a catastrophe for the Russian military. That's that's more than They've lost more. If true, they've lost more than twice as many people in three weeks than we lost in twenty years in Afghanistan, um, and that's that's really remarkable and a real sign of um, both military incompetence and a colossal intelligence failure. And so i I don't ha- I, I, I don't know if those arrests in the security services. Have happened. I think everyone's trying to confirm what's going on over there. But it wouldn't surprise me if Putin, in his rage, um, because right now he is enraged as much at his own people as he is at anybody else, um, would have put them under arrest uh, and is probably asking questions like, "Where are? Where is all the money we gave you to prepare this operation?" Um, Because it it clearly has blown up in everyone's faces.
1: And does it – you know, when I look at this situation, you know, looking ahead, this – you know, whether this is something that continues this invasion or it ends in a a few weeks, it has really exposed the Russian military as not being this behemoth that I think everybody thought it was.
3: Yeah, Russia – I think one – you know, if all of this ends in a – you know – without turning into a larger European war, um, Russia, I think for a long time, is never going to be able to overcome uh, the weakness that this revealed. Um, It it shows you that for the past 25 or 30 years, the Russian army has been coasting on a reputation rather than any kind of military um, competence. And, you know, this is really startlingly bad military performance. And um, it's, I think it's interesting that to think about the reality here that if this war ends with anything like a settlement, again, without turning into some larger, um, you know, European or global war, um, this really has knocked Russia out of the box as anything like a great power. And that the only thing the Russians have left as a claim to great power status is a nuclear arsenal. Um, but their economy is now in the deep freeze. Um, their economy was never good, but now it's a, a complete mess. Um, and they clearly have, uh, at best, a second rate military that has been um, held up and bogged down by um, Ukraine, which we would normally think of as kind of a middle power. Not one of the great powers, not a tiny power, but you know, a middle power of 40 million people. With a reasonably decent military, and the Russians, who I think were the heavy favorites, I I predicted. I said, "Wow, this will be over in a week." I mean, you know, the Russians are going to, you know, bring a pretty big hammer to this, and um, and they're still there, and they're bogged down, and they're taking remarkable numbers of casualties and losing um, scads of equipment, and that's. Um, you know, that's that's how great power status that's how you fall out of the top tier of great powers is that you lose wars to um to to opponents that no one thought could possibly
1: beat you. Well and and perhaps we've underestimated Ukrainian. Uh, the Ukrainian military, you, you describe it as uh, reasonably decent. Well, what, what does that mean to be a reasonably decent military?
3: Well, you know, we, I think part of the problem when we think about Ukraine is we think back to the Ukrainian military of 2014 um, that had a much harder time dealing with the Russians. And, you know, the Ukrainians have had a difficult time building their their state infrastructure and their military and their security services. Um, for a lot of reasons, including Russian uh, hijinks, but internal corruption and um, divisions within their own government. But after 2014, they they made a, a distinct um, effort to start building up their military ability, and also they now have a military that, after fighting with the Russians and continual fighting with the Russians in the in their eastern provinces, um, they actually have a battle hardened group of people. This is a military that knows how to handle um, advanced weaponry, that is pretty good at understanding uh, their opponent. Um, So I I think, um, you know, the Russians have learned that their military is not nearly as good as they thought it was, and that the Ukrainian military is a lot better than the one they sort of pushed out of the way uh, over eight years ago.
1: And going back to what you said about the Russian military, um, despite the setbacks still lurking in the background is this nuclear arsenal which is the great equalizer Um, and so as the biden administration navigates this crisis this war um, you know that is something that you have to take into account you can't rule out that Vladimir Putin wouldn't order some sort of nuclear strike.
3: Yeah. Although, um, you know, that at the day that happens, we're in a completely different world. Um, and but you can't rule it out. And no sensible American policymaker can afford to ignore that. Um, look, we we take that into account when we're dealing with anybody who has nuclear weapons. Um, you know, same with North Korea. Um, you know, we we have to take into account the potential destruction that these dictators can do with these kinds of weapons. Um, I think Putin um, knows this. That's why he um, opened up on the second day of this war. He opened up his um, first meeting by uh, issuing this order that Russian nuclear forces should go to a special combat regimen, which is kind of like their way of saying an alert. But you know, it's one thing to think about nuclear use in a situation like this. It's another uh, to actually identify a target or a reason that you would do it. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, Putin's a, a, you know, desperate man at this point. So they're um, sure that he has thought about it and talked about it um, with his leadership. I, I think one question is, you know, that I would have is um, how committed everyone else in the Kremlin is to, you um, you know that kind of escalation, and I'm I'm just not sure. I don't know the answer to that.
1: Tom Nichols, thank you. My pleasure. Steve Futterman joins us now. Steve, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Jeff. Where are you? Let's start there.
2: I'm at the Ukraine-Polish border on the Polish side, a town called Medica. Uh, this is the most traveled border crossing between the two countries. There are other border crossings, but this is the one where we've had most of the refugees coming into Poland cross. It's very popular, a very well-known town. It's a very small town, but pretty well-known in Poland because it's this border town right next to Ukraine.
1: So tell me more about the images that you're seeing day to day. Well...
2: Every day I go down to the border or the train station. There's a town around seven miles away called Piemish. And these are the two areas where I think we've seen most of the refugees come in. You may have seen stories on TV, heard them on the radio from these two locations. These datelines have become quite well known since the invasion began. And, you know, it's one of those things where everyone has a story. Well, everyone seems to have a very moving story, whether... They're, they've come from Lviv, they've come from Kiev, they've come from... I just met someone before we went on the air from Sumay. Uh Sumy, the town that has been quite besieged in the northeast area of Ukraine And many of these towns, you know, weren't that familiar to American, uh, American minds before the invasion began. But now Mariupol we talk about, we talk about Sumy, we talk about Kharkiv. Uh, a lot of cities in Ukraine are well known now. But as I said, everyone has, it seems, a moving story. The first day I was here, I ran into a, a young man, 19 years old, from Morocco. He was studying in Ukraine uh, to be a doctor. And he told me this very moving story. This was in the early days. We don't see what he describes much anymore. But he had to walk around 50 kilometers to reach the border. And, uh, you know, he was a young man, very fit, able to do it. But it was just an exhausting story, uh, the way he described it to me. A friend of his died as that friend was walking across uh, to get to the border here. I've I've met uh, uh, people who have met someone on the other side of the border, someone in Poland, who they had never met in person before, who they were texting with, emailing with, who said, sure, you can stay at my place. There was this uh, young woman and uh, uh, middle-aged woman who I saw one day just embracing each other, kissing each other on the cheek, huge smiles, I would have assumed they knew each other 15, 20 years. They were meeting each other for the first time. This woman had driven 400 miles to Medica to pick her up and was going to drive 400 miles back to Hauser in her home. The the Polish people have been quite receptive. Uh, It it may not always be that way because they're beginning to run out of space here, and the Polish government has expressed concern. But you've just seen remarkable stories for the entire time I've been here.
1: I was going to ask you, uh, do you expect the flow of refugees to continue as long as this war continues? And and you talked about the Polish government expressing concerns, uh, expressing the need for assistance from other nations. How long can they handle this flow of refugees? I mean, I just don't know. Not all of them have stayed
2: here. A large number have gone to other locations, but they've entered Poland. We've had overall, into all countries, more than 3 million refugees. Most of the people who are experts in this field think that number, that overall number is going to rise to 4 million, 5 million, maybe even more. And if the percentage rate continues, more than half of that number will come into Poland. And I think the Polish officials are now concerned, you know, can we handle another million? Obviously, the big cities are better prepared, Krakow, Warsaw, but, you know, there's there's only a limit that even a big city can handle. And this could become a very uncomfortable situation if at some point you have Polish officials saying, we just can't handle anymore. This flow is going to continue, not necessarily at such a, Uh, At the pace it's been coming, uh, at the pace that we've seen, it's slowed down actually the last week a bit. But as long as this war continues, you're going to see a steady flow of refugees as we see every day. And if Lviv is attacked, pretty much it's been spared so far. That's a pretty large city around 50 miles away from this border where I'm at in Medikop. You're going to see a spike in the refugees again
1: the refugees who are coming what is it that they need the most is it clothing is it food uh, where where do they need help the most
2: uh, it's it's probably everything i mean they they what they would really like of course besides going back to their country they need some assurance that they're going to be able to live a a decent life and that includes you know Finding a place to live, finding a a job where they can work, putting their kids into a school, uh, being comfortable enough in their situation that they know they'll have good medical care. Uh, here in Poland, they've done quite a job. Uh, they've uh, they've given people who've come across, they've allowed them to enter the Polish medical system. Kids are going to school right now who a few weeks ago were in Ukraine, uh, and again the the housing situation. And the work situation, I think that's the big concern. But they just want to have some assurance. I mean, their lives have just been suddenly put into you know, upheaval. They don't know where they're going to be next week, next month, next year. And you know, if you ask them what they would like, again, obviously, they'd like to go back to their home country. But except for that, they'd like to know that there's going to be some stability, a future for them. And that's something they can't be given any assurance of. On a personal
1: level, what is it like for you as a reporter covering refugees like this so close to a war zone?
2: Well, it's very moving. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, I'm sure you've been through some of these before we cover situations. And uh, we we sort of have uh, like a barrier we put up sometimes. I think it sort of comes with the nature uh, of being a reporter, that you don't let things get to you. But there have been a number of stories where Wow, I just have to take a step back and say, gee, did I just witness that? Did that person just say that to me? Is that person actually going through that right now? And then, of course, you know, in the evening, I'll, you know, have a a minor issue. Like, it's a little too cold in my room. I wish the heat was working more. And then I start saying... You're complaining. I'm speaking to myself. I say you're complaining about this when you have, you know, these refugees coming sometimes through in the middle of the night in below freezing temperatures. So our problems are, are not problems compared to what they're going through right now. Uh, don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, w- my issues are small stuff. These people have really major obstacles that they're going through right now. And it's sometimes, sometimes you feel a bit embarrassed that, uh, Uh, you're thinking uh, about your little, very personal issues when it's pretty much so little compared to what these poor people who've lost their homes, in some cases have lost family members. They don't know if they're ever going to go back to their homes. Will their homes exist if they go back? Our problems are so small compared to theirs.
1: That is true. I mean, I, I, I sit back here in Washington and I watch the evening news or I listen to your reports and you know I kind uh, sometimes I, I think about what it would be like if I was in that situation with my family trying to get them to safety and then if you're a uh, a male of uh, fighting age if you will you have to go back uh, and you leave your family behind I can't um, Imagine what it's like to be in that situation. I try, but I just it seems and it is, I'm sure, for those families, such a nightmare. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's that 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 cliche that we all use. I can't
2: imagine what it would be like, but it's true. Even if we try to imagine, it's you can't put yourselves yourself in their shoes right now because they're actually experiencing it. We're trying to imagine what it would be like knowing that it's not happening to us. So, uh, it, it's like I said, it's been very moving. Sometimes I'll tell you one other story that I just loved and I can appreciate this. I think, you know, maybe you can too. So one day I'm at the border and you know, people come through by car, by bus, by foot. This car was coming through and suddenly it stops you know maybe around a 100 yards past the border it's a small blue car i don't know what make it is and this man starts running to the car and he opens the door and suddenly he scoops in his arm and i like that word scoops in his arm two young boys they are his sons they have made it across the border he was already here The smile on this man's face was, you know, he was a father. He was seeing his kids who had made it across and just the joy on his face. It was just, it was really beautiful watching him just smiling. And the smile was so large. It was basically his whole face. It was like bursting at the seams, the smile. And he could not stop smiling, hugging his kids, kissing his kids. They're smiling. He's smiling. That was a good day
1: that is an incredible image that you paint for us here and I, I hope that there will be more reunions like that what about your safety are you concerned about your safety we've we've talked about other journalists who've uh, been in dangerous situations who sadly have lost their lives in this war uh, are you doing okay in terms of your safety?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm in Poland. I, I'm, I'm been told by CBS: do not go into Ukraine, <laughs> do not pass go, do not, do not do that. Uh, uh, and I've, I've been told very firmly: do not do that. Don't even think of doing that. You, we are given certain guidelines at CBS for our safety. Uh, what we can do, and we're told what we can't do. So I've been told that. Uh, uh, I'm not going into, into Ukraine, and I've not even thought of it. I'm very safe here. Uh, no need to worry about me. My colleagues who are across the border, in Lviv, in Kiev, in Odessa, other cities, they, they have a much different situation. I mean, I've, I've been in those situations before. Here in Poland, it's just fine. Uh, no, no safety issues at all. We did have an incident the other day where the Russian uh, missiles were fired at a target around... 30 miles from Medicop. but to be fair about it, that was a target that the Russians specifically wanted to get, had nothing to do with the Polish border. This was a base that was being used to funnel in military supplies, military equipment from the West into Ukraine, and that's why the Russians targeted that. It did shake some people up when you realize just the optics of it and the, the way it sounds, gee, 30 miles from where I'm at, Some Russian missiles just struck. If you just said it like that, it would be frightening. But when you realize why that was targeted, uh, it it didn't really affect most people here.
1: Well, Steve, I wish you and our colleagues in the war zone uh, or in Poland uh, capturing these moving images of and stories of refugees streaming across the border I wish you the best. Uh, Thank you so much for your reporting. It's really appreciated uh, bringing those stories uh, from that area to all of us here, Uh, moving images uh, that you describe and that we've seen. Really appreciate your work. Thanks, Steve.
2: Yeah, great talking to you, Jeff. Really appreciate the talk.
1: Stuart Thompson with The New York Times joins us now. He is a technology reporter covering online information flows. I like the way that sounds, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you recently wrote about what you call the four falsehoods Russians are told about the war. It's Russia's disinformation campaign, especially domestically. And I think some of us here in the U.S. take um, – for granted, uh, factual information, and what a lot of Russians are getting uh, domestically is misinformation, and that's something that you have examples of.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think in the West, we kind of think of the misinformation campaigns as being directed at us, and in this conflict, really, their efforts have been aimed uh, at the West, but mostly at their own people, and they've shut down different media sources, and they have a lot of control, obviously, over state news. So that's what they focused on. So we kind of looked at trying to see what um, events that we're familiar with over here that have been interpreted in a different way over in Russia. And we found, you know, many, many examples, but we highlighted four uh, specific examples in the piece, but they kind of speak to larger themes, you know, about what Russia is trying to do, which is basically create an idea for the invasion and why it was justified and try to sort of placate russians within russia about what they're doing and that they're sort of on the right side of of history
1: yeah after russian shellings killed ukrainian civilians uh, you uh, have um, evidence or uh, information that you saw uh, domestically russia blamed the neo-nazis was that a message that they were putting out to their domestic audience
4: yeah, they've used neo-Nazis as a recurring theme uh, in the country for a number of years. And yeah, they've brought them up repeatedly during the conflict. So one example they had was uh, that they were using similians as human shields, and uh planting artillery within apartment buildings, you know, that one's kind of stood out to me. We've seen footage coming out of Ukraine of tanks shooting at apartment buildings or apartment buildings being hit by missiles. And, you know, within the Russian propaganda machine, that's because there's artillery, they say, uh, hiding in there. They're using, you know, neo-Nazis and other Ukrainian nationalists, as they call them, are are camped out in those apartment buildings. So that's part of it. Uh, You know, it's part of the reasons that they've been giving. So it's always, you know, it's always trying to justify actions, especially things that look really bad and giving them an alternative reality.
1: Are they doing this through social media accounts?
4: Yeah, they are as well. Uh, It's always a little hard to untangle exactly what is, you know, state-sanctioned. There's definitely state-run social media accounts, especially on Telegram, the chat app, very, very popular in Russia and in other parts of the world. So, you know, they beam out ideas through there all the time. There was a couple other examples in the story about, uh, yeah, like, um, you know, explosions happening and trying to describe... What those were about and who was responsible for it. So there's also, you know, the 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 threat, I guess, as we think of it here, as you know, bot networks and things on Twitter and places like that. And you know, there's some debate about how prominent that is. But basically, anywhere you look that where there's content aimed at Russians, you're going to find uh, state-sponsored media you know, trying to frame the conflict in a different way.
1: Is there a way to determine if this propaganda is working domestically? I mean, we see some pro protest There against the war, but is this kind of propaganda uh, from the Russian government? Is it having imp- an impact?
4: Yeah, I think t- to understand that you really have to think of the the country's been under a lot of control for media access for a long time, and uh, you know they're really primed. Uh, people that watch the country and understand the country have told us that, you know, people are primed for a lot of these ideas, like the Nazi idea. That's not something that they're bringing up now. It might be new to The west but it's something that they've seeded for a long time uh the bioweapons lab theory that russia has floated and some people in the west have picked up not supported by evidence but uh you know that's another idea that they've pushed for a long time so it's confusing sometimes over here to be like well why do they believe all this stuff but really russia's clamped down a lot of media access and has pushed a lot of these themes for a very long time, and what we've seen is that it has worked. We've seen uh, Ukrainian families and and uh, Russians who are living abroad talking to family and seeing that they they buy what they're hearing, and you know it might seem a little. Uh, confusing to us, but at the same time, you know, America's not immune to that alternate alternate reality view either. There's people in the country who believe uh, fantastical things that confuse other people in the country. So, you know, I think uh, it's, it shows the power of media to control people's understanding of world events.
1: As far as what's happening in Russia, is it, were you able to determine whether the amount of propaganda coming from the Russian government domestically has increased as the situation, uh, you know, in terms of number of Russian soldiers killed in battle, has gotten up. I wonder if the propaganda has increased.
4: Yeah, we have seen some themes increase. Uh, The reference to Nazis and bioweapons, those kinds of themes have really shot up. Um, And I think that shows a bit of the scattershot approach. Like they've tried a number of things. Some of them, uh, you know, we could get into, but migratory birds is one, if you can believe it. That's an idea that they floated that. What? Birds to spread uh, bioweapons. That's, you know, it's not backed by anything, but that's a theory. So that sounds really out there. That's not taking off in the West. It's not really well known to us, but some of the other ones have taken off. So really it's like spaghetti at the wall. Some things stick and then they kind of coalesce around that. So, you know, I, I imagine. Imagine, you know my, my sense my impression is that in terms of volume these you know these sites and uh, state media they've been operating at this level for a long time um, we have seen though a couple of new accounts pop up on social media there's an account called war on fakes that that's was set up right at the beginning of the invasion sort of curiously um, and it pushes out what's what are sort of fake fact checks a so little fact check what's happening in the war but you know they'll they'll say oh this this claim that uh, you know uh, Ukrainian civilians were killed is actually fake uh, when it's not fake so they've kind of adopted some of the language of um, you know fact checking to advance those ideas and yeah those are new things um, but I think really it's an operation that's been pretty well oiled for a long time.
1: Have you seen? Um, a, is there a way of determining whether? social media is being used in ways that we haven't seen it used uh, just be, you know just during this war. has so, so, social media uh, evolved? Has propaganda evolved? Um, have you been able to determine something along those lines where you've noticed how uh, the use of social media not only in, in Russia, But also um, in Ukraine, uh, I'm sure some people, many people there don't have access to computers or telephones, but uh, are you seeing anything on the Ukraine side that stands out? Yeah, I think...
4: In a a big way, a lot of these tools and processes and ways of sharing information, they've been maturing for a long time, and they're kind of meeting the moment. So there's a war happening and a lot of attention on it. So you can tap into networks like Telegram, which, you know, there's millions of people on there, and you can spread things really quickly. Um, Some of that is obviously you know, bad. Uh, it's it's helping Russia spread falsehoods. Um, but some of it has been really good for Ukraine to get its message out. It's also engaged in its own information war. Um, you know, occasionally some falsehoods have slipped in. We've written about that as well. Um, or just myths that take off. Uh, Ghost of Kiev was one. It's this fighter pilot who, you know, shot down a bunch of planes, supposedly, but there's no real evidence that that's an actual person. But it was, you know, a useful narrative for Ukraine to push through social media channels, and a lot of watchers were pretty, um, you know, surprised by how quickly a lot of that stuff took off and they were really able to dominate it. So I don't know that the techniques are new or the technology is new, but they've really been uh, you know, deployed at a, in a much different context uh, where before it's a lot of you know, misinformation uh, networks within America and other places kind of uh, being a little bit more isolated. And now there's just more attention on them. <laughs> It is so hard for the average person to
1: sift through what's real, what's fake, on social media, especially. What do you say to those folks who are uh, listening to what you're uh, saying, reading your reporting? Um, There's a lot of information flowing on both sides of this conflict. Um, You have the Ukrainian government. Uh, urging U.S. involvement, urging NATO involvement, no-fly zone. You have on the other side the Russians and its uh, supporters uh, sending different messages. There is so much out there. How should people sift through this? How can they?
4: Yeah, I, it's, it's something that I have to do every day is sift through this stuff and try to figure out what's real and what's not. I I don't envy anyone who's trying to do a similar thing. Um, you know, there's, I think like there's some of the basics of like navigating uh, social media at times like this, like verify something before you share it. And everybody has a role to play in that. Um, but, you know, I, there's another side of it, which is, you know, you shouldn't necessarily, individuals shouldn't necessarily have to go out and figure out if something is true or not. They can rely on quality sources that are trying to determine those things for them. There's a, a huge community of people, fact checkers that are trying to figure that stuff out and they're, you know, their ally- allegiance is to the truth. So they're trying to just get to the bottom of it. Um, and another way of thinking of it is, uh, that you know people shouldn 't have to do it. It should be technology companies who have a lot of money and resources and can moderate their networks and can tamp down the spread of false content and you know we see some we, we see them struggling a little bit to navigate that at this moment where you have Russian embassies pushing out demonstrably false claims about you know attacks being faked and crisis actors being used. Um, there was the example of the maternity ward. Getting bombed, and then they claimed that the woman was an actress, um, and that's on an official account. And you know, technology companies are always struggle a little bit when they come to when it comes to official accounts versus just having anyone share that stuff. So, you know, I think it's I, I would really point the finger in other directions rather than people having to assume responsibility for themselves because it there it's true. There's it's overwhelming and a daunting task to try to figure out what's what. So, you know, I. Obviously, I'm a member of the media. I, I trust, uh, you know, fact checkers and people like that to to get to the bottom of it. And yeah, otherwise I say, you know, technology companies need to step up as well.
1: Yeah, I, I was recently on a plane and I was sitting next to a woman who seemed to be reading some sort of news feed on Facebook or some social media site. And I cringe when I see that. I just... Cringe because you know for years now since 2016, really, uh, when the Russians tried to um, uh, breach voter databases, and I happen to, to write a book about uh, Russian intrusion efforts, and and I and so I sort of cringe when I see people getting their news from Twitter, a site on Twitter, or, or some some thread on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and so, when you say, or when you encourage people to get, you know, look to a credible quality uh, source, how do you determine? Of course, I always say, hey, you know, tune into CBS News. We've been doing this for 60, 70 something years. What do you tell people?
4: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely waves of distrust among. People in America and the world, especially directed at institutions that used to have a lot of trust, the media among them. Um, You know, I think uh, there's 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 trustworthy sources on all sides of the political spectrum, Um, and I'm sure people can find something that you know speaks to to who they are, but um, and you know what they're looking for. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of point to you know, the major fact-checking organizations, they do such good work and they're really just there every day trying to get to the bottom of mysteries. And a lot, sometimes they're, they prove that the thing that's circulating is correct. Um, so that's, that's useful information I have too, not just that they're wrong. So, you know, Snopes is one, Plutifact, factcheck.org. Um, you know, those are sites that I use. Um, and yeah, there's, there's trustworthy, you know, Media sources all over the place, um, but yeah, I think there's definitely an undercurrent of distress that uh, we can't really discount, which is why you know social media platforms we can't prevent people from sharing and spreading uh, news and falsehoods on social media as easily as we can, as, as the social media companies can, you know, moderate their platform. So I really think it is, uh, you know, it's up to them to, to play a bigger role.
1: Stuart Thompson with The New York Times. Thank you. Jill Schlesinger is our CBS News business analyst and host of Jill on Money. I always enjoy my time with Jill as she makes money matters And Fed matters, less scary. Jill, thanks for being with us. What does this Fed decision mean for the rest of us?
5: Well, I think that actually we're all impacted by this because pretty much everyone in the economy is either a saver or a borrower. Uh, Very few are just neutral. So savers could start collecting just a little bit more interest on their savings, their checkings, their CDs, uh, the short-term CDs, money market accounts. It'll be a very little. I just want to be clear about that. And you'll probably find better interest rates uh, with online institutions. Borrowers are not so happy because if you're holding a balance for, let's say, a credit card or you've got an adjustable rate mortgage or you've got a small business loan loan, usually those loans are tied directly to short-term lending rates. So you're going to see a higher cost of actually what whatever it is that balances. You're going to see a higher monthly cost. And um, I, I guess the only other thing I should note is that um, student loan rates, those for federal loans, those are fixed. Those are fixed through June. But there are a lot of people bracing for the new rates that come out in July and if inflation remains high then those rates could also start to go up um for a new car loan i mean it it is a little bit of a difference but you know if you look at a quarter point on a $25,000 loan um you know you're looking at an extra 3 bucks a month so i don't think that's the worst part but if you're a borrower, you're going to pay more.
1: All right. So if
5: I'm in the market to buy a new house, that means when I go to get a mortgage, I'm going to pay more. Well, I mean, mortgage rates are slightly different because the Fed does not directly control mortgage rates. They're based on longer term treasury bonds like the 10-year treasury. But, you know, in anticipation of the Fed action and the strengthening in the economy, mortgage rates have already gone up. Um, If you look at 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, they're about a full percentage point higher today at around four and a quarter percent than they were a year ago. So that could make buying a home more expensive. But, you know, the flip side is it might cool down the hot housing market and give some people a chance to kind of get a house and and still afford it.
1: Well, that would be nice. And I'm glad you cleared that up. And it The fact that I didn't know that um, (laughs) shows you how much I know about what the Fed does. So let's go back to the basics then. Why did the
5: Fed do this? Well, you know, the Fed basically has two jobs, two main objectives. And so if you want to feel cool, you can say this is the dual mandate is what it's called. And so the two jobs the Fed has is, number one, they have to make sure the economy is growing strong enough to create ample jobs. And they sort of say, if anyone wants a job, we have to make sure there's enough jobs available. So right now, that is being fulfilled. Like the economy is really strong enough to create lots of jobs. In fact, there's a labor shortage right now. So on the one part of their goals, the Fed is succeeding. However, the other part of the Fed's dual mandate is to keep prices in check. And we have seen inflation surge to 40-year highs. And so what's happening now is the Fed has to walk this very, very fine line. They want to raise interest rates to try to slow down the pace of borrowing and then essentially spending and do that in a way so that we can see prices come down. In a sense, here you never have to take go to econ 101 ever again. If it's supply and demand, the Fed is really trying to control the demand side. And if demand goes down and supply builds up, then theoretically prices should start to drift lower. Did the war in Ukraine have an impact on the Fed's decision? In the press conference that followed the interest rate decision, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair, did say that Ukraine adds in a lot of uncertainty but you know the weird thing is remember so the feds thinking about growth and prices right these are the two sides the Ukraine situation actually threatens to slow down economic growth because that that the war in and of itself creates uncertainty um higher gas prices which could cause people to spend less money so the feds keeping an eye on the impact an eye on how the supply chains might get log jammed again, and not necessarily using Ukraine as a reason to do or not do anything, but monitoring how the situation in Ukraine trickles through the global and U.S. economy. Can you take us inside the Fed's operations thinking? Uh, They had
1: the Fed boards, the Fed governors from across the country. Um, How How do they come to these decisions? Do they take a vote? How does it work?
5: So the Federal Reserve Board is that the the people who vote on this particular committee are comprised normally, not always, but normally of economists. Now, interestingly, Jerome Powell himself is not an economist. He's a lawyer. Um, But, you know, in many respects, the job of the Fed chair is to kind of steer the ship. And Fed officials who can vote at these meetings rely on their staff, which really go through and drill down through tons and tons of data, okay? And the weird thing about economics is, you know, my, I, I think it's best to think of it as a soft science because it's not a science like you know, where you've come to a conclusion, it's more like being a doctor that, that you know, you see a, a patient has a lot of different symptoms and you're running through the possible causes of it. And you're trying to treat that patient with what you think is the right medicine to cure the patient. And so what Fed officials are trying to do is rely on all this economic data and come up with a, a central thesis of what's going on in the economy. Now, Fed officials don't always get it right. OK, so, you know, what we see is that when you have these votes, some of them dissent, some of them think you should do more or less. And, and we know that. But, you know, when you think about the Fed um, officials themselves, what's fascinating is they release economic projections four different times in a year. And just to put a fine point on it that we don't know sometimes what's going on, but they don't always know. If we go back six months ago, OK? Uh, half of the members of the Federal Reserve Board had expected that there would be one or maybe two rate increases in 2022, and the other half expected none. And now we're going to get seven rate increases this year, most likely. So expectations can shift, data can shift, and the Fed's job is to try to balance the competing needs of the economy And allow the growth to continue without letting it heat up prices. And they're just trying to do the best they can. Again, it's a soft science, not a hard science.
1: Interesting. So when they forecast these rate increases um, so far out, uh, it suggests that they're trying to slow down an economy that could overheat
5: yeah, I mean the the economy it's so strange because right now let's we are coming out of an and and Powell said this in the press conference we are coming out of an extraordinarily strange period of the economy because we had you know essentially from 2015 through let's call it 2019 there was Good levels of growth in the US economy. It was sort of like we were finally coming out of the Great Recession, which had occurred in 2008, 2009. Okay. So we were finally coming out of it. Now you get to the beginning of 2020. You have unemployment dropping to a 50 year low of 3.5%. And then, boom, you have COVID hit. The entire global economy shuts down kind of on a rolling basis, but it essentially shuts down. And we see the economy contract or shrink very dramatically the the biggest shrinking of the us economy since the great depression but due to the nature of covid we also saw things bounce back up much more quickly than many anticipated so that process of shrinking and coming back like think of it almost like jumping off a bungee cord so you go down and then you go up and you go down and up and down and up until you sort of settle in that makes the fed's job really difficult And to some extent, as they're projecting in this period of time, we've never gone through a once in a century pandemic with a Federal Reserve trying to manage the economy. So when they're projecting out, they they're very often will get it wrong. You know, just, you know, nine months ago, the Fed thought that inflation would be temporary or transitory. Well, that's not the case. It's here right now. And I think the Fed really thought that we were going to see the spending on the goods part of the economy start to slow down a little. That hasn't happened. So they've got to readjust in real time and do the best they can do. Are we seeing an
1: easing in the supply chain issues that uh, we heard a lot of talk about, but we don't hear as much talk about it now?
5: That's yeah, a great question. I mean, Jerome Powell actually said that prior to the Ukraine war, that we were seeing some early evidence that things were getting better. And we see it in some of the data that come out um, on a on a weekly and monthly basis, but there was evidence that things were actually improving. However, I think the, the war in Ukraine now brings the issue of supply chains, brings it up again, and also the fact that there are, ne- once again, we are going to start seeing some rolling shutdowns in China due to COVID outbreaks there that will also impact the supply chain. Now, the good news is that the U.S. economy is in a much stronger position to manage those supply chain constraints. The bad news is that that could mean that prices remain higher for longer, and that will require the Fed to do something. You know, they're saying, they're penciling in, hey, we think we're going to raise rates six more times a quarter point each, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a promise. It means that's what they think they're going to do. If inflation starts rising much more dramatically or something else happens, the Fed could raise rates by a half of a percentage point. They could do it more. They could do it intra-meeting. So it's not as if this is the, a fait accompli. It's just where they think they are today looking forward.
1: <laughs> My, In talking about the Fed's actions and, and how they um, are factoring in these Or forecasting these interest rate uh, hikes, it reminds me of what my father used to say to me, frankly, before I got married. He said, you got to manage expectations. Uh, And that's what it seems Jerome Powell is trying to do here, manage expectations.
5: Yeah. And you know, it's funny. There's a lot of constituencies here, okay? Because you think, oh, it's just borrowers and savers, but let's not be... Um, To Naive, the Fed is also concerned that markets and investors are going to be really changing the trajectory as well. So the reason why the Federal Reserve became more communicative over the last two decades is that there was a sense that investors were trying to guess what the Fed would do and markets would be quite volatile in reaction to it, as opposed to the Fed laying out steps and then sort of getting everyone used to it. So there's no doubt that the Federal Reserve officials do try to manage expectations. Sometimes they don't get it right. And sometimes they are spot on. But there's clear evidence right now that Jerome Powell specifically, he is a big fan of Paul Volcker. That's the guy who is the Fed chair who attacked the double digit inflation rates of the early 1980s. And, you know, I think that he doesn't, Powell doesn't want to be known as Volcker. On the other hand, he doesn't want to be known as the guy who preceded Volcker, who allowed inflation to bubble up to really unsustainable levels for the U.S. economy.
1: And and finally, so you talked about Jerome Powell. He was uh, picked by former President Trump. Uh, you say that he's an attorney. Um, but how, where did his economics background uh, fall into place?
5: I mean, listen, he was an attorney who went into public service. So, you know, he really did learn at the, at I think, at, on the job. And I think also that he has a great staff. And, you know, when Janet Yellen was the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell was the vice chair and was really quite adept at it. And, you know, to some extent, you know, even though Janet Yellen is an accomplished economist, she also has said that part of the job is to be a bit of a technocrat. You know, we have someone who's running the World Bank who is not an economist or the IMF doesn't have to be an economist, you know, so it can be. But oftentimes you just need someone who's got a great staff who can interpret data and who's a really good communicator with not just the Federal Reserve Board people, but also the the consumers out there, the press and investors.
1: So good to know you're so good at Explaining the Fed's actions in a way that somebody like me who covers law enforcement can figure this out. So thank you, Jill. All right, take care. That is this week's America Change Forever, thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Download and review this podcast. Check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can also listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey.